Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. We're going to go this morning, Lord willing, through the end of the chapter, verse 34. Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Let's hear God's word. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield to him who lifts it, wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. 
And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, Geba they lodge for the night. Rama trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Laisha. O poor Anathoth. Madmanize in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is the word of our God. Let's pray for his help now. Our God is... We come to these words that were prophesied and written by Isaiah. They are living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, because the prophet Isaiah was guided by your spirit to speak these things. And You have preserved your word and given us your word, even for us, so that we here today might study and understand these things. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would use this word to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, to pierce our souls, to speak to us so that we might know it is you who are with us, you who are speaking, your spirit is active among us and in our hearts. Do this, we pray, so that you might be glorified, so that we might trust and love Jesus Christ more. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Someone once said that a man is only as good as his tools. And you can see how that's true in a lot of instances. Uh, maybe you have spent two hours trying to get a pipe undone and then you call a plumber and he comes and does it in three minutes because he's got exactly the wrench that you need. Uh, the wrench makes him a good plumber. Or you can think of other tools. You might not usually think of as tools, but think of cooking. You might have a great recipe. You might be a great cook, but you need tools like pans. And you might have a pan that tends to burn things. And so you spend all the money on the food, you spend all your time putting it together, but it still ends up tasting like burnt charcoal because your pan burns your food. And so you look at your pan and you blame your pan. Why does this pan always burn things? Or you think of athletes. They also use tools. We call it equipment. Great Baseball hitters, home run champions, they are very particular 
about the bats that they use. If a baseball player had a bat from 100 years ago, would he be able to hit the same number of home runs? Well, probably not. And so in many ways, a man is as good as his tools. But God is not a man. God is not as good just as his tools. God is God. He has all power. He can do anything that he wants according to his nature. He can do all things. He doesn't depend on tools to get a job done. But it's not really that simple because the Bible tells us about this thing that we call providence. Providence means to see to something and that God sees to it that all of his will is done on this earth. And so God in his providence uses tools in creation to accomplish his will. He didn't need to, but he created the world and he uses the world to accomplish his purpose. God uses tools like the sun. He set a giant sun in space and set the earth at a certain distance so that the sun would be his tool to heat the planet and to give life. God makes things like volcanoes, and he uses the tools of volcanoes to do things like create ash and certain types of soil that grows good coffee that then you pick and you roast and you grind and you brew and you drink your good coffee sitting at home, but it's all because of the providence of God using a volcano. Sometimes God wants people moving out of their houses in Hawaii. And so in his providence, he makes a volcano explode to get that person out of their house. God doesn't technically need these things, but he uses them. But then we come to people in the world. You say, okay, I understand how God uses volcanoes, but does God use people to accomplish his purpose? You get mad at your frying pan and blame your frying pan for burning your dinner, but, but your frying pan has no brain and it has no will. It's not choosing to burn your dinner. But what about people? Don't people have brains? Don't people choose to do things? So are they responsible for what they do? Does God use people's choices and actions for his providence to accomplish his purpose? And if he does, are they to blame? Are they at fault? For what they do if they're just tools in God's hands? Those are a lot of good questions. Those are all the questions that come up in this chapter. This is what we're going to talk about today as we look at verses 5 through 34. 
And so we want to look at this passage and not just go through an intellectual exercise, have some interesting theological discussion. But this chapter is meant here to put us in awe of God. And hopefully as we go through his word, you worship God more. And for the people of God, this chapter is meant to cause you to trust him more, to love him more, to trust his providence, especially in your life as a child of God. So let's look at some biblical answers to those kinds of questions by first looking at part 1, verses 5 to 19. The heading for this set of verses I've put as, is it the axe or the arm? God's providence. Who is to blame? Who is at fault? Who is at work here? Is it the axe or the arm? Well, let's see what happens with Assyria. Assyria is our case study for today. We'll start by reading again verses 5 and 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So this passage is a woe, another woe prophecy. We saw a pretty dark chapter in chapter 5 with the many woes upon Judah, the curse of God coming on Judah because of things like calling good evil and, and evil good. So woe to you means God's curse is coming upon you. It's the same word in chapter 10, verse 1. Again, it's the woe against Judah. But now the woe, the curse of God, falls on Assyria. But notice, God is using Assyria. So God is going to bring woe upon Assyria, though they are doing the very thing that he wanted them to do. Look at the number of the first person pronouns in the singular. It's the rod of my anger, my fury. Verse 4, I send him, I command. God wants you to be very clear in verses 5 and 6 that he is the one speaking here and he is the one sending the king of Assyria. He commanded him to do these very things. So in verse 5, he calls the king of Assyria the rod and the staff of his anger. This is a picture of what a king did. Uh, the king would have both a rod and a staff. The rod is a symbol of his sovereignty, power, his uh, military ability to protect his people. The staff is the symbol of his shepherding of the people. He's the leader and provider for the people. But you might know that uh, those two words come up somewhere else in the Bible. The rod and the staff. They come from also Psalm 23, where David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, the king, the shepherd king, has a rod and staff for his sheep. Those are comforting. The staff 
keeps him within the fold and the rod keeps away the wolves. But when you're outside, when you're a wolf, the rod is a rod of anger. The rod and the staff are used to fight against the enemies. So the king of Assyria has his rod and staff. He has his military might. But the king of kings has his own rod and staff. And he's going to use the king of Assyria to accomplish his sovereignty and his dominion and might. To come against his enemies. And the enemies in this case are the people of Israel. Because they are, this group of people are no longer his sheep. But they are the goats and the wolves that need to be judged. They are a godless nation, verse 6 calls them. And so God sends his rod and staff to bring judgment and destruction upon Israel. And he does that through the king of Assyria. But is that what the king was doing? Did the king of Assyria say, here am I, Lord, send me, I'll I'll serve you, whatever you want me to do? Did he say, take my life and let it be, Lord, consecrated to thee? If you, if you want to use me as your instrument, Lord, I'll, I'll go to the people of Israel and I'll judge, send your judgment on them. Well, look at verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Now see, the king of Assyria, it's in his heart. His thoughts are destruction. We see in verse 7, Uh, The spiritual anatomy of a tyrant. What's in Mao's heart and Vladimir Putin and Stalin? What's in in their hearts? Here, Here it is. Destroy. Kill. Power. Land. Cut off nations. Pride. That's all they care about. And that's all the king of Assyria wants. That's that's what's in his heart, is simply to destroy and conquer as much as possible. And so verses 8 through 11 are him just uh, describing a game of risk. That's all it is for him. Uh, It's just a game of world domination. I I move my my armies down to Kalno, and then we take Carchemish, and then we take uh, Samaria, Damascus, and then we're going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm just going to conquer the world. Because that's what I want to do. Verses 9 through 11 are just bullet points on his resume. It's nothing to him. His commanders are all kings. He takes the generals from all the great other nations and he makes them serve him and become his kings, uh, his commanders. So we see here, we're starting to see God's sovereignty and 
king of Assyria's responsibility, his true intentions. He genuinely intends to destroy, not to serve God. He's doing what he wants to do, and yet he is being used as the tool of God. If your conclusion about God's sovereignty in the Bible is that people are just a bunch of robots and it doesn't matter what we do, then you don't understand the sovereignty of God in the Bible. If we're just computer codes that get spit into some sort of coding or some machine and, and out comes the world and, and we're all just a bunch of computer codes being played out in the world, well, you're not understanding what the Bible actually says. We do have hearts that really do have intentions and we think things and we do things. And yet God uses what we do. We continue to see this playing out. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Okay, so God had a work to do an assignment. He needed to judge the people of Judah. And when he's finished judging them, using the king, he's going to punish the king for doing the thing that he wanted him to do. But he punishes the king because of his arrogance, his pride, his boastfulness. Here's his arrogance in verses 13 and 14. For he says... By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Look again at the pronouns. First person singular pronouns. I have done it. I have understanding. I remove the boundaries. I bring down my hand. The king of Assyria says it's all about him. See, it's him talking now. God says, I do this and I do this. And the king says, I do this and I do this. Now, in this case... That the king of Assyria is boasting about what he thinks he has accomplished. He, he doesn't understand that God was using him to bring the judgment upon Israel. And, and this is the only reason that God in his providence was enabling his military conquest. But he takes the credit for himself. He thinks he's got it all. He's got all wisdom and understanding. I mean, he's not just a great military leader. He's like the wisest man in the world. He knows everything. That's what he says about himself. He thinks he is the greatest. He calls these nations, he's even talking about Jerusalem, like a, like a nest with eggs. And, you know, it's like a, like a, a chicken laying eggs, and the, the, the eggs are, are sitting there, and the hen walks away, and at night the possum comes in, the possum just picks up the eggs and just sits there, the snake just sits there, eats the eggs, calmly, slowly, no threats. No broody hen pecking and attacking. No, he says, there's no threat to me. 
So he just finds these cities and he just runs them over like it's nothing. Like just picking up some eggs and eating the eggs. So, he thinks he's so great. But is he so great? Well, we get God's perspective now. So now God is speaking again in verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a, a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. No, the king is not all that great. He's an axe. He's a tool. Isn't it silly for the axe to boast about what it chops down? I mean, yeah, you might be a really sharp axe. But what good are you as a sharp axe sitting in the garage forever and ever? No one ever picks you up. Do you ever cut anything down? If nobody ever picks you up, you just sit in the garage? Some of you might have really expensive tools. There might be a miter saw that costs you $1,600. And it just sits on the table. Is it any good if it just sits on the table and it never cuts anything? It can be very precise and very sharp. But if you never use it, it's good for nothing. I looked up some kitchen knives to see how expensive some kitchen knives are. Well, there are some professional chefs that apparently somebody buys a $54,000 kitchen knife. It's got some gold in it. The handle is made out of Austrian bog oak. So I guess that's why it's $54,000. Imagine having that knife. And it sits on your kitchen counter. And it never cuts anything. What's the point? What's the point of having such a knife? No. It's the hand. It's the arm. It's the muscles that swing the axe. The hand that uses the knife to cut. That's what matters. And so the king of Assyria is boasting, thinking he is so great when he doesn't realize that he's just the axe being swung by the arm of God. It's God who needs to be recognized for his power and his greatness, not the axe of the king of Assyria. And so because of his pride and his boasting, God, in changing the metaphors, he, he now changes the metaphor to a forest. The axe becomes the forest, and the axe that chopped down the forest of Israel is now going to get chopped down. They're the forest that will get chopped down. Verse 19, the trees of the forest will be so few, he says. Assyria is going to be destroyed quickly. He says, like in one day, the fire comes and burns through the forest. So God brings judgment 
on the axe. The axe was boasting, thinking he was the one cutting down the forest. So in verses 5 to 19, again, we see something of the twin truths of God's sovereignty and humans' responsibility and our actions and our intentions. Uh, I I love the way it's summarized in the Second London Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 1. It says, God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, yet without being the author of sin, nor having any fellowship therein with sin, and yet so as to not violate the will of the creature, but to establish it. And you could spend a lot of time thinking about that. I think it's one sentence. It's a paragraph. It's a deep paragraph. But it says it so well, so clearly. Some of you might think that's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense at all. Some of you might read the Bible saying that God is sovereign, and your conclusion would be, well, then that must mean God is the author of sin, and God is responsible for sin. That's not what the confession says. That's not what the Bible says. In him is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So he cannot be the author of sin, nor have fellowship with sin. God does not tempt anyone. That's what the Bible is clear about. Others of you might say, okay, well, the answer then to this is that God is sovereign, but not really sovereign. He hasn't really decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass. And so you say, well, maybe it's more like a a RPG video game. It's a video game where God creates a, a world. He sets up the world. It's a choose your own adventure story. You have three paths to go down. You choose to go down this path. And then once you choose that path, God creates three other paths for you. And and that way, God can kind of be sovereign, but we're choosing some things. That's your answer. That's not what the Bible says, though. That's not what chapter 10 says about what the king of Assyria is doing. God is clearly using him and At the very same time, he is intending and choosing to do everything that he is doing. Now, with our small, finite brains, I don't pretend that we have perfect answers or explanations for all of that. It's not a contradiction, though, to say that God is sovereign and man is responsible for what he does. It might be hard for us to understand and to comprehend, but it's not a contradiction. And we need to stand where the Bible stands to affirm both of those things. Now, as we think about this more personally, think about the king of Assyria. One thing this means for you is that you're not off the hook for what you do. You are like the king of Assyria in verse 7. You have intentions, you have a heart that thinks and desires things, and you are responsible for what is in your heart. And just as God could see through the king of Assyria, God sees what is in your heart. 
And so you need to come to grips with what this passage is saying about what God sees in your heart. Isaiah himself, without the revelation of God, could have looked at the king of Assyria and said, well, I mean, isn't he doing what God wanted him to do? Didn't I prophesy that judgment would happen and, and the king is coming and he's, he's doing what God has revealed in his will? But see, Isaiah, without the inspiration of God, would not have known what's in the king's heart. Could that be for you? You can look outwardly put together. You could even do good and righteous things. And everybody sees what's outside. They see your actions. They might pat you on the back. They might encourage you. And you can hide your heart from even those closest to you. Your, your spouse, your children, all they know about you is what you say and what you do. But they don't know what's in your heart. God knows. God can see every intention that is in you. And you are responsible for those thoughts and intentions. And so you need to evaluate yourself. And not live any sort of double life. Live a life of integrity. Be the person that you appear to be on the outside. Be that person on the inside. So many people live double lives. So many people in churches can look like they are put together, like everything's going right, like they're doing all the right things, and yet eventually their wickedness comes out because it's been in their hearts. If you have evil and wickedness in your heart, deal with it right away. Confess it and bring it to the light. Say, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any anxious way in me. Ask God to search your heart, to forgive you from even hidden faults. Don't try to hide, because you can't hide from God. Another thing that this part of the passage reminds us of is that there is no room for any of us to boast. We who believe in the sovereignty of God should also be the most humble people to realize that there is nothing to boast about. As Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? So if you've received it, why do you boast? You might think you're a real sharp axe. You're a real powerful saw. You're, you're a real glam kitchen knife. What do you have that you did not receive? You tend to look down on other people. Other people don't get things the way you get things. You're frustrated with people. They don't have their lives put together the way that you think your life is put together. What do you have that you did not receive? Why, why would you boast about if there's any good thing that you have in your life the way that your life is put together? Why look down on others? It's only God's gift working in your life. So may we be humble. Well, second, in the second part of the passage, we see that God's sovereignty is for his people's good. 
This is the key to the sovereignty of God in the Bible, is that it's always mentioned, it's always brought up to remind the people of God that God is loving and good to his people. God is not trying to spin a bunch of plates and when bad things happen in your life, he just happened to drop a plate because he couldn't hold it all together. Know that God is working all things together for the good of his people. And so the first thing that we see is how God protects his remnant in verses 20 to 23. Let's read it again. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. You know, the word remnant means remaining. It's the same as the word remaining. That means there will be a group of people who will remain. And that's a blessing from God. God is going to bring the king of Assyria as an axe to chop down Israel, but he's not going to let him chop down all the trees. He's going to keep him from destroying everything. See, if the king of Assyria had a, choose your own adventure, if God had said, okay, I'm just going to let him go down this path, and, and he goes down that path, if it's in his heart to destroy. And so if God just leaves him to his path, he will destroy everybody. But God holds back the king of Assyria because God is going to leave a remnant. This remnant of people are those who are the true believers. They no longer lean on Assyria like King Ahaz did, but they lean on the Lord. You know what lean on means? It means faith. They trust in the Lord. They have genuine faith. They're the people of chapter 4 that are purified through the fire so that they now have faith and they're part of the remnant. And who is it that they're leaning on? Well, verse 21 says they return to the mighty God. The mighty God. Remember that phrase came up before? Chapter 9. The son who would be born, he would be mighty God. The remnant are the people who have faith in the Messiah, Jesus, the mighty God. God is protecting his remnant through the Messiah. The Emmanuel child of chapter 7 protects his people. As we see in chapter 8, the Assyria comes up to the neck, but he says, they fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. They don't conquer the land because Emmanuel owns the land. He's king over the land. That Emmanuel child is the child of chapter 9, who's the mighty God. He's the one that they are returning to. So all of this is done through the Messiah. The remnant has faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have time to uh, go in depth on 
verses 22 and 23 of how Paul quotes those verses. But I'll just say that I think he quotes them in Romans 9. You can read it later, 9, 27, 28, to talk about the Gentiles. That God preserves the remnant for the sake of bringing in the Gentiles. So you can read yourself into this story. God keeps the king of Assyria from chopping down the forest so that you and I could be here worshiping God today. So he protects the remnant. Now in a similar image, he also says in verses 24 to 27, he protects Zion. I'll just read verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. So verses 28 to 34 are the king of Assyria making his march. Just like the image we saw in chapter 8 of the river overflowing and coming up to their neck, here we see a, a similar image. He's marching down town by town, thinking it's just like eggs sitting in a nest, that he's just, he's just popping one egg into his mouth after another, just moving down to the next town. But then verse 32 says, he halts at Nob. He shakes his fist at Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. But then he gets chopped down, verses 33 and 34. So you see, God keeps him from chopping down the city of Jerusalem. That's what happens in chapter 37. The king of Assyria, he says he's, he's got uh, Israel surrounded like a bird in a cage, he thinks. And then the angel of death comes and wipes them all out. And he goes back home and his own sons literally chop him down. His sons kill him. So God protects Jerusalem. God protects Zion. So the sovereignty of God is a good thing to believe in. Because if God wasn't sovereign, he wouldn't be able to stop evil. He wouldn't be able to keep the king of Assyria at bay at the walls of Jerusalem. I think when I first met you, I maybe told a little bit of this story of uh, how I came to believe in the sovereignty of God, or what people call Reformed theology. But one of the things that God used was in college. Uh, my wife and I went to Virginia Tech when we were dating our freshman year, spring of our freshman year there was a school shooting. And so it was a school shooting that at the time was the biggest in American history. 33 people died, many more were injured. And when that happened, obviously the whole community was uh, very distraught by that. And different ministries all had their events and 
worship services for weeks and weeks and months on end, almost like every day you could find a place to go to as everybody was trying to process that shooting. And I went to one of them of a Baptist campus ministry and the guest speaker preached from John 10 on how Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I just remember sitting through that sermon, getting more and more depressed as the sermon went on. And he would just say things like, God wasn't in charge of this. God had nothing to do with this. This is all Satan. Satan comes to kill and steal and destroy. This was Satan's doing. It was Satan's doing. And he just kind of said that, those ideas over and over and again. And so I walked out feeling very hopeless and thinking, there's something wrong with this. There's something wrong with this idea that God has nothing to do with evil and pain and suffering. The picture he presented was a God with his hands tied, a shooter walking through buildings, shooting, and God shrugs his shoulders and says, well, I gave him free will. What am I supposed to do? A Satan who prowls the earth to devour and destroy, steal, kill, and destroy, and God sits there saying, ah, oh, I created him with free will. I can't do anything to stop this. I'm so sorry. I promise I'll bring some good out of it, but I can't help you right now. Satan is the one devouring. That's not what the Bible says. It's not that Satan is just off a leash doing as much evil as he wants. That's not what the king of Assyria is doing in this passage. No, there's better news than that. The good news is that God's people have a shepherd king, a king with a rod, a king with a staff, who uses his rod to defeat the enemies, uses his staff to tend to his flock and protect his people. The God who says, as he said to Job in Job 38, 11, about the oceans, thus far and no further. He says to the ocean, you can come up to Cape Cod, no further. No, you're not going to. You're not going to flood the entire state of New York and all of New England. No, I, I tell the oceans to stop. God holds the boundaries of the sea. And just as God has power over the waves, God has power over people, evil people. And he says to the king of Assyria and to shooters thus far and no further. He says to Satan, thus far and no further. He said to Satan in the book of Job, I'll, I'll let you this much off the leash, but I'm not letting the leash 
go any further. Now, I understand that that's difficult in some ways. But this is good news for the people of God. Only for the people of God. If you're not part of the people of God, you see so much evil around you and, and you think this is only the beginning. This is, this is only a small taste of, of the consequences of sin and evil. And so there, there's no good news for you if you're not in Christ, but, but in Christ you have promises of God to work for your good. You know the saying that God doesn't give you more than you can handle? And uh, some people criticize that. And, well, of course, God gives you more than you can handle. Well, in a sense, he does. He gives you more than you can handle. But for the Christian, he also gives you grace to endure these things that on your own would be more than you can handle. And God promises that he will not tempt you beyond what you can bear, but he will make a way of escape. So God brings difficulties and suffering in our lives and he either gives us grace to pass through it until that time when he does make the way of escape. There's no denying there's evil in the world. There's no denying that it's suffering. You don't just go look at a school shooting and just say, well, no big deal because God's using it for my good. No, it's terrible and it's evil and yet we can have absolute confidence that God gives grace for his people to endure God will not bring you more suffering beyond what you can endure he gives you grace and he makes the way to escape so go to the sovereign Loving God for help. When you are suffering, when you face evils and difficulties, call out to him to rescue you, to help you, to give you grace to endure. We have a God of providence. A God who sees to it that his perfect will is accomplished. And this God of providence uses tools. But for the church, God's not using an axe. See, the axe is for the rebellious, godless nation. For the church, we could say the tools are more like a surgeon's tools. And yes, it hurts. It hurts when the scalpel cuts deep. It hurts when that dangerous object is removed forcefully out of your body. Surgery hurts. This evil world hurts us. But we can say that God is using a surgeon's tools for his children to bless us, to love us, to show grace. What people in this evil world mean for evil, God means for good. He is saving you. You're his remnant. You're the children of God. 
He will save you. He will help you to endure. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are the God of all power, all wisdom, and all love. And that we who come together as this church, we know you. We thank you, God, that our lives, our suffering, is not a world flying out of control, but that you are directing all things in our lives. Our faith many times is weak. And so God, we pray that you would give us your spirit to believe and understand your word, to love you, to see and trust that you are working all things for our good, for your glory. Please do these things for us because of your great love through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.